The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Today we're going to be talking about obstructive lung disease, very high-yield board review topic, which will be followed in a later episode by a review of restrictive lung disease, and then the anesthetic management of these will follow in yet another episode. Before we get started, I have a few announcements. I now have a mailing list that you can sign up for if you go to the podcast website at acrac.libsyn.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C dot L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com, ACRAC dot dot com. If you go there, there will be a link under the description of the show where you can sign up for the mailing list. The mailing list will send you notifications when a new episode is available, and there may also be news from time to time that I will send out on that mailing list that isn't necessarily worthy of an entire podcast episode in and of itself. If you're interested in critical care, I would urge you to check out Critical Care Reviews. It's called Critical Care Reviews at criticalcarereviews, all one word, dot com, by Rob McSweeney, who is an Irish critical care doctor. And he puts together a fantastic website with lots of really interesting information about critical care medicine. He also has a newsletter you can sign up for that he sends out once a week on Sunday. And what he does for you is lists some of the top most interesting trials that have been done in the past week. He breaks it down by randomized controlled trials, meta-analyses, and observational studies, and he gives you the title and a link to the abstract and the article. I believe he tries to pick only articles that are at least available for free in the abstract form and ideally where the entire article is available for free, but that is not always the case. It's a fantastic resource for anyone interested in critical care to help you keep up to date on what's going on, and I highly recommend you check it out. In Rob's May 22nd newsletter, he highlighted one randomized trial that was published in JAMA on May 15th, which I will put a link to in the show notes looking at non-invasive ventilation with a face mask versus non-invasive ventilation with a full helmet. Now, this is something I have never seen and hadn't heard of, but evidently in this study, which was stopped early after only 83 patients were enrolled because of a mortality benefit in the intervention arm, found that the intubation rate for the face mask BiPAP group was 61.5%, and the rate in the helmet group, was only 18.2%. And the mortality difference at 90 days was significant as well, with 34% of patients in the helmet group dying compared with 56% in the face mask group, a significant difference 
with an absolute mortality reduction of almost 22.5%. If you've ever seen a full helmet BiPAP machine in use, leave a comment on the website and let us know what you thought of it. You can now send emails to ACRAC at ACRAC.com, and I will get them. That's ACRAC, A-C-C-R-A-C, at ACRAC.com. You can also send them to the same email address that I've been announcing in the past couple of episodes, which is ACRACpodcast at gmail.com. And you can leave comments, as I said, on the website at ACRAC.Libson.com, A-C-C-R-A-C dot L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. With that, let's get started on our topic today, obstructive disease. As I said, this is a high-yield board topic, a lot of commonly asked questions here. The way that the ABA divides this topic up is into upper airway, and that includes extrathoracic and intrathoracic obstruction, and then into lower airway and parenchymal disease, which are going to be the things you think of more often when you think of obstructive lung disease, such as COPD and asthma. All right, we're going to start with the upper airway. The upper airway is defined as everything from the mouth and nose down to the lower trachea. This includes, of course, the tongue, the nasopharynx, the oropharynx, the epiglottis, the vocal cords, and the first part of the trachea. I will post slides on the website with this episode that you can download if you'd like to see the pictures that go along with this to help you get a mental image of what we're talking about. But the goal always is for these to be something you can listen to while you work out or commute. And so I will try to describe the figures as much as I can when they do come up so that you don't have to have the slides with you in order to get what you need out of this podcast. The upper airway is divided into the intra and extra thoracic portions. The cutoff is the thoracic inlet. So where is that? The thoracic inlet is if you put your finger on your sternal notch right at the superior border of the manubrium, that is the beginning of the thorax. That is the thoracic inlet, and that is the cutoff between extra and intrathoracic. It is also about the level of the vocal cords, and we'll see how that comes into play in a minute. Let's start with a board-esque question. Which of the following lesions limits inspiratory flow the most? So inspiratory flow, when you're taking a breath in, is it A, a variable upper airway extrathoracic obstruction? B, a variable upper airway intrathoracic obstruction? C, COPD? D, asthma? Now, if you're a good test taker, you probably already figured out it has to be A or B because we're talking about intra and extrathoracic obstructions, and you'd be right. So the question is, which one of those is it? And the answer is A, a variable upper airway extrathoracic obstruction will limit inspiratory flow the most. Now let's talk about why. I want you to think about the airway from the mouth down the trachea as it enters the thorax, remember at the thoracic inlet, as a long tube that is pliable, kind of like a long straw that is made of relatively flexible material. When you inhale, you create negative pressure in the thorax and therefore air comes in from the atmosphere and down into the lungs. When you exhale, you create positive pressure in the thorax, and air therefore exits the lungs out into the atmosphere. Now think about what effect this has on that flexible tube, that flexible straw that we are using as our surrogate trachea and airways. When you inhale and you create negative pressure in the thorax, 
I want you to imagine that straw stretching open a little bit. That negative pressure in the thorax pulls open the outer wall of that straw. At the same time, it's going to suck closed a little bit the extra thoracic portion of that straw because that negative pressure doesn't reach up into the extra thoracic portion. Imagine if you were sucking really hard on one end of a straw, the other end that wasn't feeling that negative pressure, might the walls might start to collapse, right? You could imagine that. That is similar to what's happening here. So when you inhale, you open up the intrathoracic portion of the airways and the trachea, and you collapse the extrathoracic portion a little bit. Exhalation now is the opposite. When you exhale, remember we said you create positive pressure in the intrathoracic portion, positive pressure around the intrathoracic portion of your airways, of the straw, and squeeze those walls a little bit, narrowing them a little bit. But the extrathoracic portion doesn't feel that squeeze, and so it stays open. It stays as open as it was. It may even open a little bit more because you're creating pressure that is pushing it out. So when you inhale, you get a widening of the intrathoracic portion of the airway. When you exhale, you get a narrowing of the intrathoracic portion of the airway. When you inhale, you get a narrowing of the extrathoracic portion of the airway. When you exhale, you get a widening of the extrathoracic portion of the airway. That is going to be the basis for why we see the changes that we see in the flow volume loops with inspiration and expiration with the upper airway obstructions that we see. We're going to talk about flow volume loops in a second. But first, let me tell you another way to think about this, which, although it is not exactly correct physiologically, will help you remember this. Imagine that there was a ball on a string that was sitting in the back of your throat. When you breathe in, you're going to suck that ball right into the airway and make it really hard to breathe in. But when you breathe out, it'll push that ball away from the airway, and you'll be able to breathe out just fine. That is a way to remember an extrathoracic, we said it was in the back of the throat, so extrathoracic obstruction. When you breathe in, it limits flow. It gets sucked into the airway. When you breathe out, it gets blown away from the airway. It does not limit flow. Now imagine an obstruction, a ball, stuck in a subsegmental airway. When you inhale, it will get sucked further down and won't limit flow very much because it's going to be way down in the airways. But when you exhale it will fly up right into the trachea and limit flow a lot. So this is a way to remember. Again, obviously, we're not talking about little balls on strings in the airway, but the concept works. An extrathoracic obstruction limits inspiratory flow, and an intrathoracic obstruction limits expiratory flow. These are assuming that these are variable obstructions. We'll talk in a minute about fixed obstructions. In order to pursue this further, you're going to need to remember what a flow volume loop looks like. Now, again, this is something you can see in the slides, but let me try to describe it. You have an X and Y axis. The lung volume is plotted on the X axis, and flow in liters per second is plotted on the Y axis. There are a couple of important things to realize because they're not intuitive. 
you would think that as you inhale, you would move on increasing lung volume over to the right along the x-axis. This is not how these flow volume loops work. You start all the way over on the right of the x-axis. As you inhale, you go negative on the y-axis down below the x-axis, and then you come up on the left back to the x-axis where you meet it, and that is the end of inspiration. So your residual volume is on the far right, and your total lung capacity is on the far left of your curve. That is not how you would think about it when you first look at it. The reason for this is that you are, what, what is being measured when they do spirometry is the air in, let's say, a bag. And so when you breathe in, you're taking air away from the bag. And so that's negative flow and negative volume. And when you exhale, you're putting positive flow and positive volume back into the bag. Therefore, inhaling is negative on the y-axis, and it is negative on the x-axis because you're adding negative volume. And then positive flow is exhalation, and you move along the x-axis to the right as you exhale. So the way to look at these loops is to remember you start at the far right, you breathe in and move down and left, you breathe out and move up and right. A normal flow volume loop looks like a semicircle below the x-axis and then a shark fin above the x-axis that goes from the left up in a steep slope and then a more gradual straight diagonal slope down to the x-axis. That is what a normal flow volume loop looks like. On boards, they love to ask in one way or another, how extra and intrathoracic obstructions will affect your flow volume loops. For example, they may give you a flow volume loop and ask you to pick the scenario that would best match it. Or they might describe a scenario and then ask you to pick the flow volume loop that would best represent that scenario. So let's think about how our obstructions might affect these flow volume loops. I described a normal flow volume loop to you. Now imagine that you have an extrathoracic obstruction. Remember, we said that an extrathoracic obstruction, variable extrathoracic obstruction, is going to limit inspiratory flow. Remember the idea of a ball getting sucked into the airway? That's our way to remember it. And the actual physiology is that when you inhale and create that negative pressure in the thorax, you're going to narrow the extrathoracic portion of your tube a little bit, and that is going to make it more difficult to breathe in when there is an obstruction that is extrathoracic because you'll be squeezing the airway around that obstruction and it will be harder for air to get by. Therefore, on our flow volume loop with a variable extrathoracic obstruction, the portion that represents inhalation, remember that portion that goes down below the x-axis, will be much lower flow. Remember now, it doesn't affect the total volume, so you'll still have the same breadth along the x-axis, the same amount of volume, because there's unlimited time here. This is spirometry. You can take as long as you want to inhale or exhale. So as you inhale, you still are able to get the same amount of volume, but at lower flow. 
So instead of going that nice semicircle down below the x-axis, there's going to be the beginning of a dip down below the x-axis, and then it will flatline at a low negative flow until it gets back up to the x-axis. So you're cutting off that bottom portion. What is a nice semicircle on a normal loop becomes a cutoff portion of that semicircle on the variable extra thoracic obstruction portion of inhalation. Exhalation, on the other hand, remember because you're, uh, when you exhale, you're now creating positive pressure in the thorax, which will, if anything, open the extra thoracic airway a little bit and open the area around that obstruction, creating less obstruction and allowing the air to now get out in a normal way with normal flow. So your exhalation portion of the curve will still look like that shark fin. It will still be a normal exhalation curve on your flow volume loop. An intrathoracic variable obstruction will be the opposite. So now, remember, we're talking about when you inhale, you create negative pressure and you open the intrathoracic airways a little bit. So an obstruction there will not cause as much of a problem because you're pulling the walls of the airway away from that obstruction. And so inhalation will be normal. You'll still have that nice semicircle below the x-axis on your flow volume loop. But when you now try to exhale and that positive pressure in the thorax will squeeze the airways around that intrathoracic obstruction, it will now cut off your ability to exhale well. And so the portion above the x-axis will now be abbreviated. Instead of a nice shark fin, you will just have a small semicircle that doesn't go very high above the x-axis. It will look like it was cut off before it had a chance to get very high, and that's what's happening. Your flow won't be zero. You still will be able to exhale, and you'll still get the same volume exhaled, but your flow will be less. And so on your flow volume loop, the portion above the x-axis will be cut off. Now, these two examples were variable obstructions. We talked about a variable extrathoracic and variable intrathoracic obstruction. When we say variable, what we mean is that they are affected by the stretching or narrowing of the airways. So, for example, with the intrathoracic obstruction, when you inhale and stretch the airways out, it creates more space. So this might be a narrowing of a portion of the intrathoracic trachea such that when you pull the rest of the trachea away from it, more air can get through. On the other hand, we need to talk about a fixed obstruction. A fixed obstruction could be a circumferential narrowing, such that it doesn't matter if you are inhaling or exhaling, it does not widen or squeeze down on that portion of the airway because the narrowing has overtaken the musculature, and it's stiff enough that it won't respond to the differences in pressure when you inhale and exhale. That leaves you with an obstruction that will have the same effect of limiting both inspiratory and expiratory flow. And so you can imagine that your flow volume loop will be cut off both on the inhalation and exhalation portions. So if you are looking at it, you can see that you still have the same volume from residual volume to total lung capacity. But instead of a nice, deep semicircle below the x-axis, you just have a cutoff portion that looks like you went down a little bit and then started going directly left instead of continuing down and around like a semicircle. 
And then as you go above the x-axis, the same thing happens. You end up with kind of a square-looking figure with one portion of the square or rectangle is probably a better way to think about it. One portion of the rectangle below the x-axis and the other portion above. You can also think of this as looking like a hamburger with one bun below and one bun above where you should have a nice deep semicircle. You just have a hamburger bun shape below and where you should have a nice tall shark fin above. You just have a hamburger shape above hamburger bun shape above. Another thing you might see on boards you might get asked about is what happens. What would produce a double hump on the exhalation portion of the flow volume loop? So what I'm talking about is imagine again our X and Y axis and you have your normal inhalation semicircle down below the X axis. You start to come up to what would be the beginning of your shark fin on the beginning of the exhalation above the X axis and then it dips down so the flow decreases as if it were going to be cut off. But then it goes back up again and then comes down. So this is called a double hump and what causes this is a lesion right at the thoracic inlet, a variable lesion right at the thoracic inlet. You can, it starts off acting intrathoracic. So you have normal inhalation, remember, because inhalation pulls the walls away from that intrathoracic obstruction, allowing normal inhalation. But then when you start to exhale, you get the beginning of a cutoff what you see with the exhalation on an intrathoracic obstruction. The exhalatory flow begins to be cut off. But then this lesion right at the thoracic inlet pops out of the thorax and becomes extrathoracic. And now you have normal flow for your exhalatory portion. And so your exhalation flow goes up and then comes down more normally. And this gives you this double hump, kind of like two little mountains, the first one small, the second one larger, above the x-axis. This double hump, again, is for lesions at the thoracic inlet. For example, lesions right at the vocal cords that might be right below the vocal cords, but on a strong exhalation, they pop through and are outside the vocal cords. There is a concept called FEF 50% over FIF 50%. This is forced expiratory flow at 50% of vital capacity divided by forced inspiratory flow at 50% of vital capacity. The reason to know this is that it's used to categorize extra and intrathoracic obstruction. So an extrathoracic obstruction, you will see that ratio increased to an average of 2.2 times normal. And again, the reason for that is that with an extrathoracic obstruction, your expiratory flow is normal, but your inspiratory flow is limited. And therefore, when you divide the forced expiratory flow over the forced inspiratory flow, you'll get a higher number. The numerator stays the same, the denominator is reduced, and you end up with a higher number. Intrathoracic obstructions, you have a decreased ratio. And again, you should be able to see why, because when you have expiratory flow with an intrathoracic obstruction, your expiratory flow is decreased, but your inspiratory flow is normal. And now with our numerator being the forced expiratory flow, that will be reduced. Our denominator, the forced inspiratory flow, will be normal, and we will have a reduced ratio. And the average for an intrathoracic obstruction is a reduction to 0.32, or about one-third of normal. With a fixed obstruction, as you can imagine, this ratio will be normal close to 1.
Let's think of some things that can cause upper airway obstruction. Now, they can be intra- or extrathoracic, depending on their location. The board wants you to think about congenital causes. So kids can be born with tracheomalacia, which is a floppiness to the airway that shouldn't be there. You can imagine that if the airway were floppy enough, it would collapse on itself and cause obstruction. So tracheomalacia causes an intrathoracic obstruction. It's in the trachea inside the thoracic inlet. Laryngomalacia, on the other hand, weakness of the walls of the larynx would cause an extrathoracic obstruction. Vocal cord abnormalities, depending on where, if they're external to or internal to the vocal cords, could cause either internal, intra- or extrathoracic obstruction or a variable obstruction that could go from, that could cause that double hump that we talked about, that could go from intrathoracic to extrathoracic with exhalation. Children can also be born with congenital vascular rings narrowing the airway, laryngeal webs, and of course scoliosis, depending on how it presents, can compress the trachea and the airways. All of these things can cause upper airway obstruction. With vascular ring, rings, depending on where it is, will we'll determine whether it's extrathoracic or intrathoracic. Scoliosis, again, depending on where the compression is, but usually this will be intrathoracic. Scoliosis, depending on how it presents, again, can actually cause restrictive disease too if the thorax is twisted in such a way that the lungs cannot expand, that would cause a restrictive pattern. We'll talk about that in the next episode. But for our purposes of this obstructive disease episode, we're thinking about when scoliosis causes an obstruction, a compression of the airways themselves. Infectious causes of upper airway obstruction include epiglottitis, which would be an extrathoracic obstruction, peritonsillar abscess, retropharyngeal abscess, again, extrathoracic, Ludwig's angina, diphtheria, and croup. All of these are infectious causes of airway obstruction, almost all of which are extrathoracic except for croup. Other causes of upper airway obstruction include tumors, obviously that can be compressing any portion of the airway, intra- or extrathoracic, trauma, so a neck hematoma, which could compress the trachea, fractures that could cause swelling and compression, and burns, which can cause complete circumferential compression or partial compression. Foreign bodies, again, could be extra or intrathoracic and cause obstruction. And of course, there are soft tissue causes such as obstructive sleep apnea and various upper airway nerve palsies, which can cause tissue to collapse and obstruct the airway. All right, let's move now to the lower airway and parenchymal obstructive diseases. The ones the board wants us to talk about are asthma, emphysema, bronchitis, cystic fibrosis, and the bronchiectasis that is associated with it, and mediastinal masses. When I was in med school, we were taught that there were three separate mechanisms, three separate diseases, COPD, which included emphysema, and chronic bronchitis as separate entities, and then asthma as a third entity. It is now considered that all of these are obstructive respiratory diseases. All are considered COPD. Asthma is not if it's completely reversible, but if it's not completely reversible with medication, 
then it is considered to be COPD. And emphysema and chronic bronchitis are thought to be just two different stages along a spectrum where many times smokers, for example, will develop chronic bronchitis prior to developing emphysema. But even if they never develop emphysema, these are all lumped together now as COPD. However, there are some distinguishing features. Asthma causes obstruction by causing causing thickened, tightened airway smooth muscle and excess mucus. It's associated with CD4 plus cells, T lymphocytes, eosinophils, and IL-4 and IL-5. Emphysema is caused by dilation and destruction of airways distal to the terminal bronchiole, which is referred to as the asinus. So the asinus is the portion that is involved in airway exchange. It includes the respiratory bronchioles, the alveolar sacs, and the alveoli themselves. And that's what's destroyed in emphysema. In emphysema, you get CD plus, CD8 plus cells, T lymphocytes, neutrophils, and CD68 plus monocytes and macrophages. Now, I don't think that you need to memorize these exact molecules. I'm just giving, to you, giving them to you so that you realize that there are different molecules associated with these different forms of COPD. And finally, chronic bronchitis, which is excess mucus and airway thickening, is associated with the same markers as emphysema. Let's go back to our flow volume loops and see what happens when we have emphysema, bronchitis, or asthma. The obstruction is going to cause a change in our ability to exhale. It won't affect inhalation, but it will affect exhalation. It won't affect it in the same way as a variable obstruction did because the effect will vary over time. Remember, a variable intrathoracic obstruction caused a cutoff of the flow during expiration. It was just a hamburger bun. Remember, it went up a little bit, and then over like the top of that hamburger bun, it never got up like that shark's fin should. Unlike that, with COPD, you have an initial upstroke of exhalation that is relatively normal. It's not totally normal. It doesn't get quite as high, the flow does not get quite as high, but it does go up like the beginning of that shark's fin, and it gets fairly high. But then, instead of continuing down at a diagonal slope, at about a 45-degree slope, like a normal shark fin normal curve, you have a steep decrease in flow. The way this is often described is that the expiratory curve is scooped out, so that instead of a nice upstroke and then a 45 degree angle downstroke, you have an upstroke and then a much sharper downstroke, which curves as a concave curve down to the x-axis again. This is caused because as you start to exhale, you start to get more and more obstruction due to the obstructive disease and your flow, though able to initially the air that initially comes out of the upper airways comes out quickly and your flow is normal. And then as you try to exhale, as your body tries to exhale the air that is in the more distal airways, it faces that obstruction and the flow decreases dramatically. This is as opposed to a restrictive flow volume loop. For example, a flow volume loop for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which gives you a restrictive pattern. And here you'll see a very high, sharp increase in your expiratory flow, and then a very sharp decrease 
but without that scooped out portion. The volume is reduced. So compared to a normal flow volume loop, the restrictive loop is a lower volume, but high flows both on inhalation and expiration. The obstructive loop is larger volumes, so you often have even larger total lung capacity than usual, but your inspiratory flow is normal. Your expiratory flow is that scooped out portion, that scooped out flow graph. In obstructive diseases, you'll see very typical spirometry patterns. When patients get pulmonary function testing, you'll see patterns that will stand out. Spirometry includes a variety of values, but the most important to know are the FVC, which is the forced vital capacity, the FEV1, which is the forced expiratory volume in one second, and then the ratio of, of those two, which is the FEV1 over FVC ratio. You also have FEF 25 to 75%, which is the forced expiratory flow between 25 and 75% of vital capacity. This is important because it's thought to be the effort-independent portion of the curve. So regardless of how hard a patient may be trying to exhale or inhale, the flow between 25% and 75% of vital capacity is thought to be pretty consistent regardless of the effort they put in. There's also something called MVV, which is maximum voluntary expiration. And this is saying inhale and exhale as much as you can in one minute, and we'll measure it, and that's your MVV. In obstructive disorders you will find that your FVC, your forced vital capacity, is often either normal or a little bit reduced. So this is the total amount that you can get out. Your FEV1, though, the amount you can get out in one second, is very much reduced, as is your FEF between 25 and 75%, and your MVV, so the total that you can get in and out in a minute, because you have a very hard time exhaling. So when you then take your FEV1 to FVC ratio, remember the FEV1 is very decreased. You can't get a lot out in one second. You get that initial flow that's relatively normal, just the, the air that's in the trachea and upper airways, but then immediately in less than a second, you have the very steep decrease in flow that's scooping out of the curve, and that leads your FEV1 to be very reduced. Then you have an FVC that is relatively normal, and so you have a small numerator and a relatively normal large denominator, and that leads to a very decreased FEV1 over FVC ratio, which is one of the markers to remember for obstructive lung disease, especially because this same ratio for restrictive diseases is relatively unchanged or even increased. Your residual volume and total lung capacity in obstructive diseases are increased and this is often seen on chest x-rays of patients with severe COPD, where you see massive lung volumes revealed on chest x-ray. Another variable you'll see reported on spirometry is the DLCO. That stands for Diffusion Capacity for Carbon Monoxide. This measures the ability of the lungs to transfer oxygen to the blood. As the carbon monoxide diffuses, that is a marker for how well oxygen can diffuse across that membrane. In obstructive disease, you'll see that the DLCO correlates with the degree of emphysema. Smokers with airway obstruction, but who have normal DLCO, have bronchitis, but not emphysema. Whereas as that DLCO decreases, they're starting to develop emphysema. Asthmatics 
have usually normal or high DLCO. So this is a way to distinguish in airway obstruction, whether it's asthma or COPD, meaning emphysema or, bronch or chronic bronchitis, that's causing the problem. In cystic fibrosis, which we'll talk more about in a minute, the DLCO is often normal until very late in the disease. Cystic fibrosis, as you probably know, is a genetic disease. It's an autosomal recessive disease, meaning it requires two recessive alleles to manifest the disease phenotype. It's a mutation in the CFTR gene, which leads to an inability to transport chloride and sodium appropriately. And this causes a variety of problems that include respiratory complications, which is what we're going to focus on here. The life expectancy for patients with cystic fibrosis is, even in today's medical day and age, only 39 years. Let's take a break and have another board question. What is bronchiectasis? Is it A, chronic airway infection, B, recurrent pneumonia in patients with cystic fibrosis, C, dilation of airways due to wall destruction, D, being the subject of excessive bronchoscopy? If you said answer C, you are correct. Bronchiectasis, commonly thought to be chronic airway infection in patients with cystic fibrosis, is not actually referring to the infection. It is the dilation of the airways as the walls of the airways are broken down and the airways dilate. That is what is actually referred to as bronchiectasis, and this is how it arises. Cystic fibrosis leads to an inability to transport chloride and sodium effectively, which leads to thickened secretions in the airways. The thickened secretions allows for colonization with a variety of organisms because the secretions can't be cleared well. There's also, a there's also damage to the cilia in the airways from cystic fibrosis, and that leads to even poorer clearing of the airway secretions. When you have these organisms that colonize the secretions, it now leads to massive inflammation as neutrophils flood into the airways and try to deal with these organisms. The neutrophils degranulate, and the degranulation of the neutrophils leads to a huge amount of inflammation. The inflammation and the inflammatory factors lead to destruction of the walls of the bronchi. And as the walls of the bronchi start to get broken down, the airways dilate. As they dilate, that remaining cells in the wall secrete even more mucus to try to fill in the area that is getting broken down. And as you get more mucus, you get even more infection. And you can see how this would be, in a way, a vicious cycle. One of the most common infections in cystic fibrosis is pseudomonas. So why pseudomonas? What happens is that there is increased oxygen utilization by the lung epithelial cells in cystic fibrosis due in part to the attempts, the ongoing attempts to clear the mucus that can't be cleared. And so the lungs, the epithelial cells are kind of in overdrive, though it is a futile overdrive. And this causes a local hypoxia within that mucus layer as all the oxygen is being used up. It turns out that Pseudomonas aeruginosa, when it is in a hypoxic environment, gains the ability to make what's called a biofilm. And a biofilm, once it is established, is almost impossible to eradicate. It's like an incredibly sticky glue that is stuck to the inside of the airways and cannot be cleared by the body. Once it's there and established, 
The patient is now colonized with, with pseudomonas and is going to have recurrent pseudomonal infections, probably develop resistance to any treatment for pseudomonas, and eventually have refractory pneumonias. The buildup of mucus and the plugging of airway by infections and inflammation and mucus causes a similar pattern of obstruction that is seen in emphysema, bronchitis, and asthma. All right, let's move now to talking about mediastinal masses as a obstructive disorder. There are anterior, middle, and posterior compartments to the mediastinum. For our purposes today in talking about airway compromise and obstruction, we're most concerned with the anterior compartment, anterior mediastinal masses. And as you may remember from medical school, causes of anterior mediastinal masses are remembered with the mnemonic of the terrible T's. And this refers to teratoma, thymoma, thyroid tissue, and, quote, terrible lymphoma. Those are the four most common causes of an anterior mediastinal mass. All right, another question here. What is the safest way to induce a patient with an anterior mediastinal mass that is compressing the airway? This is a symptomatic patient, let's say a patient who can't lay flat because they get so short of breath from their anterior mediastinal mass that's compressing their airway, and you have the pleasure of being the anesthesiologist, taking them to the operating room for excision of this mass. What's the safest way to induce them? Is it A, rapid sequence intubation with succinylcholine and etomidate, B, an asleep fiber optic intubation, C, an awake fiber optic intubation with the surgeon standing by ready to perform a tracheostomy, or D, an awake fiber optic intubation after cannulating the groin vessels for ECMO. Think about it. If you said D, you are correct. The answer is an awake fiber after cannulating for ECMO. The reason for this, the reason it's not answer C, is because it won't help you to do a crike or a trach on a patient whose airway is being completely occluded by a mediastinal mass below the level of the trachea. If, for example, there is a mass compressing the trachea at the carina and you do a tracheostomy, it's not going to help you. If you're in this situation, which you should never let yourself be, where you have induced a patient and either because you've given neuromuscular blockade or because you've taken away their inherent drive to breathe and now you are using positive pressure, you've caused the mediastinal mass to completely obstruct the airway, your options are either to get someone to do a rigid bronch and hope they can get past the mass or to try to crash onto ECMO. If you can't do either of those things, your patient is going to die. A tracheostomy and a cricothyrotomy will not help in this situation. And that is why if you think you may lose the airway, if they're symptomatic and based on imaging, this mediastinal mass is going to compress the airway or is in high danger of compressing the airway, you want to be able to put them on ECMO immediately when you lose that airway. And so you have to have them cannulated. You need a perfusionist and a circuit in the room, and you need to be ready to go on ECMO. You can either go on prior or you can go on after, but either way, you have to be ready to go on right away. Mediastinal masses can cause both obstructive and restrictive pathology. Imagine for obstructive that it's compressing the trachea itself, or for restrictive that it's actually such a large mass that it's reducing the compliance of the lungs, making the lungs unable to expand fully and therefore causing a restrictive pathology. 
Masses in the mediastinum can compress the airways, the trachea, great vessels, most commonly the SVC, and the heart itself. Obviously, these can cause a lot of problems for you in trying to do anesthesia for the case. Some important things to keep in mind then would be that if there's going to be SVC obstruction, your central line in the IJ is not going to do much for you. So you need to have a groin line, a femoral central line in the case of an SVC obstructing mediastinal mass. As we said, you want to think about an awake intubation, maintaining spontaneous ventilation, avoiding neuromuscular blockade if at all possible, because if you give neuromuscular blockade and the chest wall collapses with no musculature contracting to hold it open, you can have complete collapse and compression of that mediastinal mass. And finally, if your imaging or symptoms that you learn about beforehand are concerning enough, then as I said, cannulate for ECMO or cardiopulmonary bypass first before you induce this patient. All right, that's about it. This has been a long episode, mostly because I've spent a lot of time trying to describe loops that are difficult to describe in person. It reminds me of the time I took a workshop where we had to describe in words on a piece of paper. We had to write a perfect description of how to make a paper airplane without saying what the thing was supposed to be. And then someone who was not there while we were writing would just take a piece of paper, read our instructions, and try to use it to make a paper airplane. I was sure that I had written everything perfectly, that I had written the instructions that would make it easy to make a paper airplane. And what my partner made when he came in and read what I'd written and tried to follow the instructions looked kind of like a sinking boat, but nothing like a paper airplane. And you realize that it's very difficult to describe things that someone can't actually see. So I hope that you were able to envision these loops, these flow volume loops. If not, please take a look at the slides that I'll post along with them, or you can just Google flow volume loops and see a quick review of the various loops. Remember, a normal loop looks like a shark fin, a steep edge of a triangle starting on the left portion of the x-axis going up and then a 45-degree angle down to the right portion of the x-axis, and then basically a semicircle below the x-axis for the inhalation portion. In a variable intrathoracic obstruction, the inhalation portion is normal, but the exhalation portion looks like a hamburger bun on top of the x-axis instead of that nice shark fin. In variable extrathoracic obstruction, you have the inhalation portion, which is changed, which is different. So the bottom, the below the x-axis portion, instead of that nice semicircle, is a hamburger bun. And then you have your normal nice shark fin above the x-axis. A fixed obstruction causes a hamburger, a hamburger bun above and below the x-axis. Obstructive lung disease such as emphysema, COPD, asthma, chronic bronchitis, cystic fibrosis, causes a relatively normal beginning of your exhalation loop. Not totally normal. Your flow is still reduced, but it goes up maybe three-fourths of the way that it would go up of your normal shark fin, and then you have a curve down, a concave curve as you slope down and out to the x-axis, leading you to have a scooped-out portion of the exhalation curve. All right. Thanks for listening. Please leave comments at acrac.libson.com or email acrac at acrac.com. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Let me know if you have ideas for future episodes. 
And obviously, if you've identified any errors in what I've said here, let me know. And please leave comments on the website so that others can see them as well. We'll see you next time when we'll talk about restrictive lung disease. I'm Jed Wolpaw for the ACRAC podcast. Have a fantastic week. And remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.